In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Tonight, we'll study Psalm 119. This psalm has no title. The author is not mentioned, but almost all early church fathers said it is written by David, and it is composed throughout his entire life. They have considered it as a memoir, memoir of David's life, in which he expresses all the states through which he had passed. For example, David went through many trials, persecutions, reliefs, encouragement. All these stages are mentioned in this psalm. It seems to be a collection of contemplation on the Word of God. So it is a contemplation on the Word of God and its precepts, its usefulness, its distinction, and its value in our life. Unfortunately, modern commentators usually cast doubt on what is the tradition of the church. So as I said, all early church fathers said it is written by David. But modern commentator said it is after the exile, Babylonian exile. And it's written during the days of Nehemiah or Azra. Although some commentators assign this psalm to the times of Babylon captivity, but there are so many things in this psalm descriptive of David's state and his experience and his affairs. That's why we believe it is written by David. This is another alphabetical or acrostic psalm. What do I mean by alphabetical or acrostic psalm? As you know, in the Hebrew alphabet, we have 22 letters. And this psalm contains 22 parts. And each part is composed of eight verses. So this psalm is 22 sections, and every section is composed of eight verses. Each of the 22 sections is given a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, from the alpha to the tav. Each line in that section begins with that letter. For example, first section is Alpha. The eight verses, each verse is started by Alpha. Second section, for example, is started by B, according to the Hebrew alphabet. So the eight verses, each verse starts with letter B, and so on. The equivalent alphabet in the New Testament, which is written in Greek, would be the Alpha and Omega. But the closest parallel to this pattern in the scripture, we found it in Lamentation chapter 3, which we read it on Good Friday. Lamentation chapter 3, in the original text, it's 22 section. So it is like the 22 section of this psalm. And there are other passages in the Hebrew scriptures use an acrostic pattern. Acrostic means 
first verse alpha second verse second letter hebrew third verse third letter hebrew and so on the close personal relationship of david to god is one of the most remarkable features of this psalm when we study this psalm we see how david is so connected with god in every verse except maybe one or two after the first three verses we will find the word god or lord so god is addressed in every single verse except maybe one or two verses after the first three introductory verses another observation in all except 14 verse in all the verses except 14 verse the psalmist addresses god in the first person you god so he's talking to him it is the longest psalm because 22 multiplied by eight verses i told you 26 so it is 176 verse so it is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the scripture Therefore, this psalm has been of great historical interest and there have been many lengthy works written on it. And since this psalm is glorifying God and his word, it refers to the scripture over and over again. Almost in every single verse, there is a reference to the scripture. So it is an extraordinary psalm of how often it refers to God's written revelation, his word, the scripture. As I told you, it is referred to the scripture in almost every verse. A group of Jewish scholars between the 6th and 10th century AD called the Masoretes said that the word of God is mentioned in every verse except one verse, verse 122. Except this verse, each single verse has a reference to the scripture. Other people analyze it differently with this agreement about verses 84, 90, 121, and 122, whether these verses refer to the scripture or not. But we can say that the scripture is mentioned in at least 171 verses out of the 176 verses. And a prominent theme in this psalm is the profound truth that the word of God is all sufficient. All sufficient to all our needs and all our conditions. Because the scripture is a reflection of God's nature. The scripture tells us who God is. And from the scripture, we learn that we can trust his character. And we can trust his plan and his purpose for mankind. Even when those plans include affliction and persecution, our affliction and our persecution. As Psalm 1 
verse 2 said, Blessed are those who recite the word of God day and night. Yes, blessed indeed are we. If our delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law we meditate day and night. Some commentator considered Psalm 119 is extension of Psalm 19, especially verses from 7 to 9. Why? Because these verses speak about the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So the psalmist uses throughout Psalm 119 several synonymous to describe the word of God, counted by some at eight synonymous or ten synonymous. When I say synonymous, they are not just mere literal language synonymous, but each synonymous, each word, referred to specific feature of the word of God. For example, the word testimony testifies about God, commandments, God instructing us, precepts, word, law, way, truth, judgment, righteousness, statutes. These are different synonymous, but each one refers to a feature in the scripture. And the repetition of the name of God occurring exactly 22 times. Definitely, it was his intention to repeat the word of God more than one time. This psalm touches on the privileges and blessedness of those who observe the law of the Lord. And reading this psalm reveals to us David's concept of the word of God how David valued the word of God, which has been the center of his thoughts, interest, love, and meditation day and night. The psalmist is one whose earnest desire and purpose it is to make God's law the governing principle of his conduct. He doesn't want to do anything in his life not according to the word of God. His goal is to surrender all self-willed thoughts and to submit his whole life to the supremely perfect will of God. He wants to surrender completely to the will of God with unquestioning faith in God's providence and his unfailing love. Nowhere does the psalmist allow law to interfere between him and God. Nothing will interfere between him and God. Never is an observance of external rules substituted for the internal devotion of heart. David was not hypocrite. He's not just following God externally, but it was very important to him the inward devotion of the heart. Also through this psalm, we will know and discover how David himself practiced prayer. 
It reveals the life of prayer lived by the psalmist, who said in Psalm 109 and verse 4, I am a man of prayer. I am a man of prayer. And David did not separate the spiritual law of the Lord, his commandment or his word, from his own worship, his prayer. So he did not separate between the Bible and his prayer. The commandment of God is not merely an instruction written in a book and we follow, or an instruction we heard it in a sermon, but it is the gift of the Holy Spirit to us and has power to transform us because the word of God is living, a living word. Many think this psalm is a messianic psalm about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, because one of the titles of the Messiah is the Logos. Logos means what? The word of God. And this psalm is speaking about the word of God. So he's speaking about the Messiah. And some commentators think it refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because there are eight verses in each of the 20 sections of this psalm. And figure eight is the only figure of the new beginning. God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh day. Eight number eight would be the eternal life. The week starts on the eighth day. So the, the first day of the week actually is the eighth day. And figure eight refers to life after death. As I told you, God created the world in seven, six days, rested on the seventh. The general resurrection will be in the eighth day of the world. Also, Jesus Christ rose on the eighth day, which is the first day of the week. If he was crucified on Friday, the sixth day, then Sunday will be the eighth day. So the Lord Jesus Christ has risen on the eighth day. And according to the scholar origin, the use of figure eight, number eight, has its special significance. It's something very beautiful. He said, as the psalm includes 22 sections, and each section begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and the use of the letter was repeated eight times because every verse starts with the same letter. So this means entrance into the perfection of purity and knowledge. Why? In the seven days, God created the world six days, seven days, Adam fell in the seventh day. So the seventh day represents the defilement in which the world was counted as uncircumcised. If circumcision is a symbol of purity. So during these seven days, the world is uncircumcised. And I'm sure you know circumcision was done on which day? On the eighth day. Until the Lord Jesus came and was circumcised on the eighth day. In him, in Jesus, we enjoy purity. So that is the significance of number eight. As it's number of circumcision, and this each section is eight verses. So this psalm is the entrance into the perfection of purity and knowledge. Scholar Origin continues and says, this purity was realized by the work of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And his resurrection was also on the eighth day. He was risen on the eighth day, namely the first day of the new week. So all of us, without exception, were purified in the circumcision of the Lord Jesus Christ and also according to St. Paul in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we were buried and were raised together with him. So we were purified through the circumcision of the Lord and the resurrection of the Lord and both happened on the eighth day. In the Coptic Church, this psalm occupies an important position in the midnight hour of the Agbeya. Why the church put this psalm to pray it in the first watch of the midnight hour? You know, the midnight hour, the soul looks forward to the coming of the groom. We are watchful and waiting for the coming of the groom. So the church finds her comfort after the whole day ends and we approach the midnight and sing to the divine groom who is the word of God, who comes to carry the church with him to the fellowship of his glory. Because this psalm speaks about the word of God. So as if we are watchful, waiting for the coming of the groom, and we singing to the word of God, to the Logos, to the groom, we are waiting him to come and to carry us with him to have the eternal fellowship with him. And according to St. Augustine, although this psalm is so deep that St. Augustine says, I cannot fathom its, its depth, yet it needs no interpretation, but only to be read and listened to. So he said, if we read and listen this psalm and we pray it, that's all what we need. The father of the church considered the book of Psalm as the heart of the Holy Bible. And this psalm is the heart of the book of Psalms. Because this psalm introduces to us the word of God in a language of praise and joy, even in our darkest moment. The first section from verse 1 to 8, it speaks about the blessedness of obeying the commandment of God. Section 2 from verse 9 to 16 the way young men ought to live. So we're going to start from verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. So section 1 starts by Aleph. This section speaks about loyal obedience to the law of God. And this is the source of man truest blessedness. If you want to be blessed in your life, obey the word of God. Therefore, the psalmist prays that it may be the permanent rule of his life to follow the word of God and he may learn it and understand it better. As the Lord Jesus Christ began the Sermon on the Mountain with Beatitude, blessed are the poor in the spirit, so the psalmist here also begins with beatitude. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. As I said, the whole psalm is designed to illustrate this thought 
by showing what influence of the sincere and upright attachment to the principle of the law of the word of God in all our circumstances, the circumstances of life. If actually we are attached to the principle of the word of God in all our circumstances, definitely we will receive great blessing in our life. Integrity of life is defined as walking in the law of God. He said, blessed are the undefiled in the way. Who is the way? As you know, the way is Jesus Christ. He is the gate. He is the narrow way to eternal life. He is the only true way of life and salvation in which way we should walk by faith. In the mind of the psalmist, there is a strong and definite connection between being undefiled in the way and walking in the law of God. Because he said, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. What did he mean? To walk in the law of the Lord is in fact to be undefiled in the way. As St. Augustine says, I know what you wish. You are seeking bliss. If then you want to be blessed, be undefiled. How? To walk in the way or the commandment of God. No one in the Old or the New Covenant was without sin. So what, how can we understand the word undefiled? So no one actually except the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb without blemish and without spot. We can say that whoever intend to enjoy the beatitude is committed to live his life in the example, in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can say to us, you are clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. And Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. If we walk in the law of the Lord, this means we should abandon every other way and choose the only way, the law of the Lord, because it is the purest way. The metaphor of walking appears throughout the psalm to express the sum of one's behavior and conduct. And Christ himself informs us that the straight way to eternal life is to observe his law. As he said in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 17, when he asked the rich man, what should I do to inherit the kingdom of God? So as if he told him, if you want to enter into the life, keep the commandment. So the word undefiled doesn't mean absence of sin because no one is sinless except God. Because if undefiled in verse 1 means absence of sin, then no one would be under such a category. But it means absence of mortal sin. What's mortal sin? It is the sin without repentance. So absence of any sin without repentance. 
Because this mortal sin, when we don't repent, that leaves a stain on our soul. So the metaphor here is taken from the spots one picks when he is walking through muddy, dusty, or dirty places. But we become undefiled because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Blessed are the undefiled in the way means throughout their life because our life is considered a way by the reason of constant changes in it from the moment we are born till the last minute of our existence. God's law is a straight and clear path. Why? Because it prohibits all manner of sins. And the law of the Lord, the psalmist uses for the first time here, a phrase referring to the written revelation of God. So when he said, who walk in the law of the Lord, means the written revelation of the word of God. The many various ways he referred to God's written revelation. As I told you, he used 10 different synonyms, precept, law, judgment, statutes, etc. So the various ways he referred to God's written revelation show us how much David knew, loved, and reverent God's word. Actually, even until now, surveys and polling data constantly demonstrate that those who live lives in general conformity to God's standard are the happier people, are the more blessed, they enjoy their life more, and they are more content with their life. But unfortunately, the illusion remains for many that a defiled life is a life of fun, which is not true. Verse 2, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, another word for the law of God, who seek him with the whole heart. To keep his testimonies is nearly the same as to walk in the law of the Lord. Same meaning. Blessed are those who keep his testimony, in which is implied that they search the scripture, they come to an understanding of the scripture, they love the scripture, and they continue in the practice of the scripture. Keep his testimony. Keep means doing not only just hearing. It's not enough we understand or ponder on God's commandment, but we need to practice the word of God. And then it's beautiful here when he said, who seek him, seek God, with the whole heart. With the whole heart. With a sincere desire to know his will and to do it. That's whole heart mean. If one will seek God, with the whole heart, it must include diligent study of the word of God. God looks at and requires the whole heart. God doesn't want part of our heart, but the whole heart. My son, give me your heart. For if the heart is divided between God and the world, then the heart is defiant. And God's law are channel of blessing to those who seek God with their whole heart. So when actually 
we follow the word of God, we will be blessed. As they become more and more aware of those law and try to keep them faithfully, then they come to treasure the relationship with God even more, and thus they are blessed. Verse 3, they also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Do no iniquity means they are righteous. Their character is that they do that which is right. This doesn't mean they are free from sin or free from acts of sin, but it means sinning is not the cause of their lives. They may fall, but they repent. They avoid all idolatry, injustice, and wrong. They don't follow the wrong way and making sinful decisions. So the person is blessed who avoid these behavior, who instead follow God's way. They walk in his ways, not on the ways of an evil heart. So the evil heart will not entice them, not those in which the thoughtless and wicked walk. They don't walk with the wicked or with the softness. Verse 4. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. So here the psalmist connect God's commandment. God commanded us to obey him. So he connects the commanded obedience with the blessing when we become obedient. He shows that the reason why God commanded us to keep his word and his precepts diligently. Not only because keeping the commandment is glorifying and honoring God, but because it is path to blessing for us. God gave us commandment because he wants to bless us. Like a father gives his son commandment because he wants his son to be successful. When David said, you have commanded us, you can see here the psalm begins to address God in prayer. And verse 1 and 2 and 3 was speaking about the word of God. But now from verse 4, he starts to direct his prayer to God and he addressing God, you have commanded us in prayer. And this position he will hold through most of the psalm. The psalm is a prayer to God. This shows that David was not only a student of the scripture, but a man of prayer. You commanded us, so the word of God is not just a human wisdom. It is not a book of morality. It is not only because it will be for our interest, but why we obey? Because God asked us to listen to him. Some people, when they ask, why I should do this? Why I pay tithe? Why I should confess to Abuna? Why I should not divorce? Why? The simplest answer, because God commanded us. That's the simplest answer. So the commandment of God are not the precepts of men, but the commands of God, who had a right to command as creator, as preserver, as redeemer, as a king. God has the right to command us. Verse 5, 
after he said that God commanded us to keep his precepts, so now he is praying, oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. So this is not only a virtuous wish. It's not just expressing his desire or a wish, but it is a prayer that God may enable him to obey the word of God. You cannot obey the word of God without the grace of God. If God is not working in me, I am lacking the ability to keep the commandment of God. I need his work in me to be able to keep the commandment of God. So here we can see in verse 5, the psalmist sensible of his own inability, as every good man is. We know we are unable to keep the commandment of God. That's why we pray for grace, for direction, for assistance. The psalmist gets personal. This isn't a theological paper on the word of God, on the scripture. But it is an interaction with the living God regarding his primary way of showing himself to us, how God revealed himself to us through the scripture. It is not enough for us to be called to take the way and to have it. But we should cry out to God to keep us on it and to let our ways be upright. So verse 5 is an important prayer for each uh, person. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. His statutes ought to be the aim of our life the purpose of the soul, and the ruling wish of the man. Then in verse 6 he said, if I am keeping your word, what will happen? Then I would not be ashamed when I look into your commandments. The commandment of God is a mirror. It tells me my weakness and my strengths. When I keep the commandment of God and I look at the word of God, I will not be ashamed. So the divine law is as a mirror, which shows man his defects. The faithful, in looking in it, have no cause to be ashamed because they are keeping the law of God. Then I would not be ashamed, either before God or before man. Because shame follows transgression. The psalmist asked God to direct him to keep his statutes so he would not have a reason to be ashamed. He would not be disappointed. That means not to be ashamed. All his hopes would be fulfilled. He would have full evidence of the mercies of God because he is not ashamed. And he would feel assured of ultimately obtaining eternal life. God is holy, and he wants his people to be holy like him. God gave us commandment as a way to enable us to grow toward holiness. So the commandment that God gave us, it is his way to help us to grow into holiness. Those who have a sincere respect to all God's commandment will not be ashamed. Not only they will be kept from doing that 
which will turn to their shame, the commandment, the word of God will protect me from doing shameful sins. But also, when we keep the commandment of God, we will have confidence toward the God and boldness of access to the throne of grace. As St. John wrote in his first letter, chapter 3 and verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. If we are not ashamed, we have confidence toward God. Then, verse 7, he switched to praising God. I will praise you with a brightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgment. His own experience of the nature of God's righteous judgment, the judgment of God that are righteous, and their value in our life, made David offer sincere praise to God. The more we know of God, the more our heart will be ready and willing to magnify and praise his holy name. So the psalmist found it not only important to praise God, but to do it with uprightness of heart. Many times we praise God with our mouth, but he said here, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgment. He did not want to offer God the image of praise from outside, or a moment of praise, while the rest of his life was not upright. Because God's judgment are all righteous, and therefore it is appropriate and necessary to learn from his righteous judgment. So it is an easy thing to praise God in word and tongue. We say we praise you, glorify you, word and tongue. But only those who have learned to praise God with uprightness of heart are well knowledgeable in this mystery of praising God. They are inward and deep with God in praising Him, not just externally, but inwardly. And they sincerely aim at His glory in the course of their prayers. So they want to glorify God when they pray as well as in living a godly life. So they praise God and glorify Him, not only in prayer, but every day in their conduct by living a godly life and practicing His command. And God accepts only the praises of the upright. Last verse in section 1. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. David talks with confidence, saying, I will keep your statutes. So turning from prayer and supplication, then to joy and praise for the sake of the riches of God's grace and his work in him. This is the psalmist's will and wish, and it expresses his firm purpose. What's his wish? I will keep your statutes. But we sense here a note of desperation in the psalmist. Lest the confidence would turn into a self-pride or human boasting. When I say, I will keep your status, it can be human pride. Like Peter, when he said to the Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. That's why after the psalmist said, 
I will keep your status, said, do not forsake me utterly. I will keep your status, oh, do not forsake me utterly. As if he is saying, he knows and loves God's word, yet he is also very conscious of his inability to live the word of God unless God is working in his life. It is as though he trustingly say, I will keep your statues, for I enjoy your free grace. Therefore, in order to be able to keep your statues, please don't forsake me until the end of my strife. Because if God did forsake him, he would be lost. So the psalmist was so sensible of the necessity of divine presence and grace to assist him in the observance of God's statutes. Without your grace, I cannot observe your law. The heart that sings, do not forsake me utterly, is a heart that longs to be close to God. That's why he said, do not forsake me utterly. The psalm reveals the fact that a man who obeys the will of God, as revealed in the scripture, comes to a personal fellowship with him. That's why he said, do not forsake me utterly. This concludes section 1 from Psalm 119. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.